They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Baby, come back. Put the bye-bye-bye-bye. Put the bye-bye-bye-bye. I must admit I was a clone to be messing around. But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Bye-bye, 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 bye-bye. Hello, Jenny Rainsford, how are you Hello, David Hellard, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. I'm, I'm in less of a grunt than last week. Um, <laughs> this is, this is, we're on a, this is a Tuesday morning. Obviously, we're much happier towards the start of the week than <laughs> the end of the week. Yeah, like, life is not happier. It's just that I find it hard to be sad for a long time. And I forget that I'm sad and the things that are destroying my life Deem less significant versus sugar never, and, you know. I, know. I never had you down as that kind of person. I didn't realise that you're in your life, it's not a series of uh, high-energy moments of happiness. It's just a series of moments where you forget how unhappy you are. Oh, that's <laughs> <such> a... <laughs> no, no, it's more... Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's more... Oh, it's when I don't... It's, the great thing is, at the start of the week, uh, you know, I, I'm not crushed by my... <laughs> My own insignificance. The way but towards, the end of, but towards the end of the week, I realised just how insignificant and pointless it all is. <laughs> yeah, I've just got to hide the hide, pills on a. You hide that really, really well. I've just got to hide the pills on a Sunday night, and I'll get through to the next week. It's always the. It's always the way. It's always people like you who are like, it's going to crack sometime. It's going to crack sometimes. I do think my. I'm like one of those dogs where I'm, my base level is happiness. And then every now and then something like hits me and I'm like, oh man, this is actually really bad. Oh, this sucks ass. <laughs> and then but it's suddenly really something, it's really yeah. bad. Like no one wants, no one wants to see David Hellard depressed. It's, <laughs> it's like, it's like a crack in the matrix. Like we just, we don't, we're like, we don't understand. It's like, if, if he's you're... not happy, why am I happy? <laughs> yeah, how can, how can any of us be happy if David's not happy? <laughs> But is, there, we, is, there, is there such thing as happiness? Have we been lying to you all along? <laughs> but um, we've got a... Um, I'm not even sad when I'm on a downer. But anyway, um, so we've got... Coming up today, we've got Scott Kane, who is an, another person who seems to be constantly enthusiastic and happy. I, all I conclude, it's something to do with wearing shorts. Like the happiness, not Scott. But like the, the links of us, we're both slightly grey. We both... Wear think, shorts constantly, think, and we both run it. I think the word slightly there is a little bit generous. <laughs> That's he a good is, point. That's a good he point. Is, he is slightly grey, yes. <laughs> That's true. I didn't want to bring him down to my level. But um, Scott is Scott is a, a man who I've known for a number of years through various means, and he's, he's massively involved in different sections of the running community. But most recently, he has been creating an organisation to try and promote the needs of runners, but also to encourage people to, to run more. And, and that doesn't mean run a half marathon. It means run to the shops, run to work, just changing your habits so that the journeys that you would never consider to run, you run those. Um, and he's created a London, he's created. <laughs> it, it take, well, it's weird, isn't it? Because it, it's almost, when you listen to this, it's almost, uh, it, it changes your perception about running. Like it, it's mm, genuinely yeah. eye-opening because what he's really talking about is using running like most of the third and developing world use running as in a means of getting about as opposed to mm. actually 
a way of keeping fit from our usual malaise and or for recreation. A, a, way, it's a way of seeking pride in an office to people that despise you is is one is one <laughs> yes it, yeah as we as we use it it's either, to keep, either to keep yourself fit or to grasp some semblance over control over the life that hasn't hit the <laughs> that's that's stumbled away from and you that stumbled away from you and there is nothing else you can control it <laughs> nothing else you can take pride in or control but um and, but and, the... even, and, it, and even that you're not very good at <laughs> Well, which is why we're ultra runners, which is why it's about... <laughs> which, is why, uh, <laughs> which is why we use the excuse of ultra running to not be good at normal running. But um, the, the main crux of it probably comes down to whenever you hear transport policy, whenever you hear plans being made towards health or towards changing roads or towards, um, as I said, transport policy, it's always drivers, walkers and cyclists. Where are the runners? And, and that is the crux of it. But anyway, 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 um, I have got I've got some good news that almost brings together a couple of stories, one of which we were very skeptical about and one which we've been crying out for. OK, go on. Uh, there is a new brand of trainers I've never heard of. Ooh. Wait, 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 wait. This is what normally happens with a new brand of trainers. They come in, they say either they're sustainable, they're, they're going to change the face of trainers forever because they've got some kind of support <laughs> system or some kind of suspension system in it that, or, that that's going to change it. Or there's some element to it that, um, uh, that has been developed by scientists. They always bring in some scientists and say, this is the way it's going to happen. I've covered all of those stories at some point for, you know, running magazines. <laughs> And then we never hear about it six months later. And in the in the covered by scientists, what is the what is the parameters? Like what are the outer limits of what a scientist is? Like GCC science? <laughs> Read a book? There's normally what ha normally happens is that some some um, some clever sausage uh, has read something that a scientist uh, a piece of a research paper. And then they've got in contact with that person and they've developed something in conjunction with them using their science. Uh, I once covered a story about a mattress manufacturer yeah. who worked with a worked with a scientist in order to develop what was going to be revolutionary uh, new film of cushioning, which of course we've not heard about before. But that's kind of what happens. That's kind of someone someone in manufacturing connects with someone in science to create something. And then we never hear about it again. Well, this one, this I think this will do well. So, oh no, so um, have I tempered that? You were very excited about it, and now my cynicism is <laughs> completely. Anyway, moving on, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> no, ignore everything I just said. Go on, David. What? Why is this exciting new innovation? Well, firstly, online subscription. Oh, um, what? Yeah. What? <laughs> Wait, we already know the con know. that that was. Was that on? Was that um, it was on running? Yeah. They were just clearly trying to get headlines. So online subscription, but I believe there's a reason behind this. This is the first hundred dollar plated trainer. What? Yeah. So we've had the Vaporfly, we've had Hokers, what come with their names, or the Adidas ones come with their names. And um, it's always good branding, have names that no one can remember. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's something that sounds cool and fast. But um, but these are called the Atreyu. Atreyu? Actually, I, I've never heard it, sounds, it said that name. Sounds very June, doesn't it? 
That's a tradies, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, um, but and it looks absolutely. Um, boss. It, it, it looks like the Tesco budget range. <laughs> oh no, the opposite of boss. Before they rebranded to um, to say we don't despise all people who can't afford to to buy expensive stuff, but um, yeah, they've this. It's a new running company. They've um, and it's this. This is. It's, the shoe is called The Artist. What? <laughs> I'm not sure what they're going for here. There's got to be, there's got to be an art to, to naming running shoes. Yeah. Because... The, shoes and cars. Shoes and cars, yeah. Cars, I mean, the thing is with cars, a lot of stuff can be... Um, a lot of stuff happens because it, they're lost in translation. So that's understandable. But with shoes, it's slightly different, isn't it? Like anything, like using a percentage in it or something, that's clever. I think that's clever because it, it gives an element of mm. uh, precision, science, science, science and precision. Absolutely. That, it kind of works like that. And I think Brooks have been good because I can remember them. Uh, but then other ones where they come up with mixtures and names, you're just like, what? So what? this one's called The Artist. It's a, a Treus, The Artist. It, it reminds me of Tyler, The Creator. The, uh, the musician. But um, yeah, so it's called The Artist. And the big thing is just that they've got a carbon fiber plate in the shoes. So that is the supposedly the big difference between normal running shoes and the next wave that everyone's busting times in. Although actually, having spoken to you know the designer of the, the Nike shoe, my understanding was the foam was, was more pivotal uh, the the plate was was useful, but actually it was that depth of foam. So they've created, yeah, they, they they've created a, a shoe similar that's only a hundred dollars. But um, the the reason they're doing subscription, I believe, is probably because they need to be able to justify that price. So you have to buy three of them. In essence, you have to buy either one every month for three months, or three over the course of a year, I believe. And so you're you're spending the same amount of money on a pair of shoes, but you're getting three of them, which I think is um, well. Even if it's annoying, you've got to spend as much. At, at least it's putting a marker out there of something that's a hundred dollars. And we've been saying for ages that we need one brand that makes a cheap version that then encourages other brands to make an, a, cheap, a cheap equivalent, and suddenly it brings down the whole market. We need the Ryanair, the Ryanair of. Um... Yeah, well, well, exactly that, right? Ryanair came in and, and suddenly you had EasyJet and BA were trying to, and you had all these other companies emerging and BA then had to change its business model. And we're hoping this will be the same. But do you want, do you want a pair of Wizz Air trainers? That's the, that's the question. <laughs> I mean, <No. laughs> that, that is made for a running shoe. Wizz Air is bust now. They should be snapping that up. Wiz yeah. Air Trainers, Wiz yeah. Air. See, that's a good. That's a good. So the thing. That's the thing, isn't it? It's. I I think you know we've talked about. We've had many an argument on here about sustainability, much of which you won't have listened to, listener, because we've cut it because we thought no one wants to listen to us arguing. Um, but we've we've talked about yeah we've talked about Tesla and stuff like that. You know there mm. there is room in the market for a and for for new players to come in and you know go with. Um, sort of change change the game in terms of 
what you can offer. And it may be models like this. Like one of the things that we said about the on thing was this this could be the future. This may not be the specific mm. thing that does it, but at least it brings like subscriptions into the into the into the equation. I think the, mm. the challenge with this, of course, is that no one knows what the shoe is. You know, you don't know the shoe is any good. It's quite it might be a bit of a punt to buy three pairs of shoes which aren't yeah. suited to you at all. But you know, and I imagine eBay is going to have a lot of people who just want to buy one, try them and sell two, and yeah. people who want to only want to buy one. So that there will be a secondary market. It, it depends. I suppose it depends on who they're going to, who are going to be the early adopters. Because have you ever read um, Crossing the Chasm? No. Which is yeah. Well, that's about it's about it's about buyer groups, and um, the uh, what it does is basically said that you know we've always talked about early adopters on here in terms of like sustainability, and there's like a group of people, this one percent of people who will always buy. Uh, I, I might be getting the numbers slightly wrong here, so so forgive me. But um, there's always like a one percent of people who will buy anything that comes out, anything that comes out at all. But then there's a larger group of people, I think between like eight and ten percent, who will listen to positive feedback from that one percent, and then they will buy it, buy it, and then. That, that sort of mm. that group, those two groups together decide whether something has the potential of either, of becoming a little bit more mainstream. Mm. And so I suppose it's going to depend. And this, I think, is where a lot of companies get it wrong. A lot of these new entrants into the market is they get they get it into the wrong hands at the start. They get it into into the you know the, they need positive feedback from the mm. right kind of people mm. in order to persuade that large, slightly large group of people who listen to positive feedback from it. So I suppose the success of that. It's going to completely depend on who are going to be the early adopters. Are they going to be people who are, you know, serious runners, uh, you know, who are going to be judging this against, you know, uh, similar similar shoes, or are they going to be putting it in the hands of influencers who maybe don't really know as much, but you know, they're going to get. It. So I, I, I think it's I think it's really exciting. What? But they, but, yeah. you, but you're saying that they look really really naff. Well, I'll, I'll send you a picture. They they look minimalist, but the big difference is in the two is that the the foam that was that she used in like the Vapify, for example, something called Pbax, and this one is something called Eva, and it sounds as if the foam is cheaper and doesn't respond quite as much. So that to me would suggest it's still got the, the plate, um, but my understanding with the conversations with Nike was that the plate wasn't actually as big a difference as the foam. So I don't know how responsive these will be compared to the Vaporflies, for example, but you definitely would suspect that they're going to be far better than something without a plate and without any of this ex expanded foam. Yeah, so I say it doesn't, it's not that it looks bad, it just looks very minimalist. So it's completely white and then there's yellow laces, oh, okay. a, a red brand saying Atreyu and a blue brand running club. So it, it looks as if when I was sending this in to a shoe manufacturer, I just put it on there as like, this is my holding screen for once I've actually designed what the shoe looks like. Oh, yeah. So it looks like a, it looks like the prototype, doesn't it? Yeah. So what, yeah, what, but, this is this is Runner's World. It's got editor's choice. Yeah. And, and this is what's so interesting about it. I, and maybe this is, I don't know. I don't understand well enough how Runner's World America works. But the, what They're is... Corrupt, corrupt as hell. <laughs> no, allegedly. Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I don't, I, I don't know whether their their model is that they'll only review honestly if it's good, and they won't review bad things. Yeah, no. I see because the, as a business, that makes sense because you you're not gonna 
you're not ever going to win business from a company when you slate their stuff. And so whether you just quietly say, look, mate, we can't we can't do a good review of this, honestly. So let's just pass this one and wait until your next product. So I, I don't know if that's true or how influenced they are by you know, editorial um, and. But the good thing is they slate their previous pair of shoes. They absolutely slate them which actually does wonders for increasing the credibility of this pair. So I think the really interesting thing here is the, is the comparison they make with, you know, in the section of shoes like Atreo's The Artist, because when you see it that close to, to all the other trainers there, my goodness, like that is, you know, it's a massive saving. Um, hmm. I suppose it comes down to performance. The, I mean, the only the only negative they see around it is the fact that you, it was a is a is a, a product of the purchasing um, uh, process, which is that you can't try them on beforehand. But there's going to be enough people that are going to be able to to try them on hand. Yeah, buying stuff just online, yeah, you know, that's that that isn't a um, uh, that's not a major problem anymore. Um, yeah, and, and actually, given the, the resale market, I, I think you can quite easily buy these and sell them for more instantly because other people won't want to buy three. Yes, and exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point. And, the, and, and what this shoe might actually fulfill is that space between you might have people that – my assumption will be the performance won't be quite as good, but it will be – better than shoes not of this style and therefore it fills that gap for people that they want to race in the very fastest shoe possible on race day but when they're training and we've spoken for years about the potential of these shoes to revolutionize how beat up you are after a, a hard run these could become the training shoe where you don't want to have to to buy the the expensive adidas or hokers and therefore you train in these and get the performance benefit of not beating your legs up during hard sessions and then save your expensive shoes to race day. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of and sense. If, and if that happens, you'd then think that the brands will follow and create their own version of a, we're creating this to, to look a bit more budget, to, um, to not be as good as our main one, but, and, and suddenly then, it, yeah, it changes everything. So real game changer. Hopefully, genuinely game changer. So, so let's revisit in six months, see what happens. <laughs> and also, do batters. Who in, we've got a lot of listeners in America. Who out there is going to get these? Let us know because I don't think these oh, are coming it, to the UK yet. Oh, is it only US at the moment, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'll get in touch with them, actually. I'll, I'll get them to send us a pair because I'd love to try them. But, no, no, no. They'll send you three pairs. You're not allowed to change. That's <laughs> true. And I'll send, well, <laughs> eBay, eBay UK, keep an eye out. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, do banners. Who's who's in North America that can get these and wants them and will try them and gives us and, and has already experienced either the Hokers, the Adidas, or the Nike, who will give us an objective view on a, a review of these because I'd I'd get them on. I'd get that person on to do that. That'd be really interesting, really useful. It's funny, wasn't it? Like when when we talked about the the on running subscription, there mm. was there was there was excitement about it until the sort of the reality of it sort of came through. Mm. But then there were there was quite a lot of criticism about on running just the shoes themselves. 
So, you know, yeah. that, that's the thing. There's, there's so many different aspects, so many variables that have to work to make this work. You know, that you know, the, the type of subscription model. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. The shoe might be great, but it's the subscription model that might be letting itself down. So there's just yeah. going to be a whole, whole ton of testing and this like a kind of period we're going to go through. Are they, are they, I mean, I'm not, that's, that's not a key aspect of it, but are they sustainable because in, in any way, or is there any, as, any environmental aspect to it? None at all that I, I mean, okay. the, right. the, the foam I think is pretty bad, but the, <laughs> they all are, all of the manufacturing yeah. process for those all seem terrible. Yeah. I mean, the, in, it probably is, um, in some ways better because it, the design is so simple. There's less paint, there's less, you know, it's less materials. So it probably does use less energy and waste less than a trainer in multiple colors with multiple functionality with multiple, you know, this is, it's the green stripe equivalent of the Vaporfly. But um, yeah, on to, yeah, interestingly, so this is, this is a conversation where I don't know, if, you know, when you, you speak to a friend, you're like, can I use this on the podcast? Hmm. <laughs> Well, to be fair, you've changed because before you were like, you'd normally, you'd share it and then you'd go, wait a minute, Nick, maybe I shouldn't have used his name <laughs> or, or her name. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or, or mentioned the nun. Yeah. Mm, none nuns, no nuns. But, um, well, this one's more because it, it actually, I, I wanted to discuss it on this podcast because of it connects with what Scott was saying, but I may know someone who is involved in, London Transport. Okay. And I just found this quite fascinating because it, it speaks to a lot of the things we love to do with um, middle class enclaves that think they know best in meeting rooms. So um, they have messaging around when to use the tube, around encouraging exercises, exercise, yeah. and now they're actually, they are also chiming the type of things that scott's going to talk about about encouraging people to cycle more to walk more to get more active and um i i know someone connected with the with the advertorial side of this yeah and they're trying to use the lingo of the lingo right they're trying to speak in a, a you know in a voice that connects with um, particularly BAME females because they seem to be the group that are least active. Okay. Um, and but to do that, um, they have to get their phrases and their advertising copy passed by a predominantly white male middle-aged committee, and okay. apparently they're not. They're, they're not um, accepting any of the hipper, streeter, cooler phrases because streeter. they're completely. <laughs> am I just digging a hole here? Maybe I am. Should we cut this? <laughs> no, let's not cut this. No, I think. So, so what you're saying is that this is this is classic. So mm. they're trying to, as you, you're trying to adopt the tone of voice of the people you're trying to reach. Mm. Yet they, yet the people who are in charge of signing it off will not accept that that is how people speak because they don't speak like that themselves. Yeah, 100%. Right, yeah, okay. absolutely that, okay. which... Classic. You can understand their point of view on that, but you can also... It doesn't take much to realise that you are not in touch with this group. But isn't it... Is there... I mean, I don't know. Isn't there also a 
uh, a fear because they, 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 if mm. you get this wrong, then they, they, for the exact same reason, people will go back and go, oh, typical <laughs> white male middle class committee thinks this is how people speak and signed it off. Isn't there, isn't there a fear as well? as? Oh, that yeah, I think I think you're right. And, and then it just it just, you know, speaks of why we need diversity. In, in all workplaces. Cause... That's a, I think that's the fundamental fundamental thing that drives it. I don't think necessarily, well, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's difficult to know in different organisations, especially <laughs> ones that are institutionalised as much as, uh, you know, sort of public sector ones like, like, like TFL. But I think, you know, it, if, if there is going to be diversity, the reason that they'll have diversity is so that they can spread the blame more diversely <laughs> when something goes wrong. Uh, what do you mean we had a Mexican guy on the committee? <laughs> yeah, no, hey. that's, 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 that's that's how that's how you sneak diversity in to, yeah. to these to these very very uh, difficult places where they they're trying to uh, you know sort of protect their own power, but you sneak them in by say by you know, diverse groups by saying oh they'll share the blame with you it'll be fine everyone will share the blame and then that's how that's how you get diversity rather than appealing say so, oh we should have diversity in in these committees. And it, it actually then flows into one of my favourite podcasts, Reply All, which I, I spoke about many, many moons ago. It, it's amazing stories, loosely connected to tech, but actually a lot of them are to do with the people involved in that and the oddities of um, just of life itself. And they, throughout Corona, have struggled to put episodes out. I don't know if that's to do with the recording or just because the research needs to be actually heavy location based. And they then started on a slightly different thread where they were looking at racial diversity, but also um, in, in, ingrained depression of uh, minorities in, in the culture of a food writing magazine um, under Condé Nast, I believe. And it, it then turns out after the second episode, they had to shut the podcast because the people within their organization said, this is exactly the same in our organization. How can you be so blindsided to who you are and what you're doing and projecting this and so we've now lost one of my favorite podcasts for the foreseeable future so um, so so they so a podcast the podcast was reporting on sort of bullying, workplace bullying, bullying on the exact of minorities exact thing that was happening in the in the podcast podcast organization yeah and um it makes me nervous because we have been nick your dick edit better nick <laughs> <laughs> we've been ruthless, ruthless. So uh, <laughs> and but it, it it does seem at the moment that in all aspects of life just it, it almost now all these all these practices that we're so used to and though we we had it in the article it is happening now with the, the british gymnastics organization oh yes yeah it's coming out. And, it's all coming out. Yeah, and we're we're at that next level that it's nuts to see because everyone knew it, but just being horrible to people now is finally a bad thing. And in well, gymnastic, but but that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, that was the key thing I think from read from uh, from that article I sent it over. It was the thing saying you know they uh, their focus was on medals and it wasn't on properly nurturing people and it wasn't on properly. Um, you know, bringing out the best of people. The the, the mm. it was a short term focus on medals, and so, and that's it, isn't it? I think that's you know, the, 
I think we, as a society, um, have accepted that you know if if that's the way that you train people to get medals, that's yeah. the way that that's the way you get medals. And yeah. I'm sure, uh, you know, whether that's right, but I'm sure that those coaches who who use that way will say, well, that's the way we've done it in the past, and so that's the way yeah, you know, we do it. And they'll say, you've wanted do you, this. Do you do you think do you think in Russia? Do you think in China? <laughs> do you think in any of the places where we who we compete against they do any differently? And so those I think those two things they've mm. held up for that whole time, and and, and and as a public we've kind of been indifferent to it. We, it's not as like we've we've purposely said oh we like you know bullying thing, but we I, I'm sure we've known it's there. If you look yeah, at any exactly. stereotype of films that parody sports, or there's always. Yeah. The absolute uh, crushing boss, the, the the coach that um, you know belittles people. Yeah, and then and then always the 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 yeah you know, the athlete hates them until they realise you know, that the that the that the coach is right, and you know it's never the coach that moves in terms of who in terms of the success. Mm. It's always the athlete's attitude that has to move, and it's a narrative that, that, that that's gone throughout, hasn't it? Yeah, and it's going to be really interesting to see how this transforms western sport because there's been similar claims about british cycling in the past and any organization seems to have a very and, and, and the crux of the british gym, gymnastics one a lot of it comes down to um female bullying and, and calling them out for weight and saying they need to lose weight and that's where it, it changes from being like something that is you know mentally damaging to something like physically dangerous um, and even that, though, I, you know, I, I once dated a girl when I was really young who is short because she was a gymnast, like her toes are all screwed because the, and we've we've grown up with this knowledge that actually at the upper echelons of sport, it's absolutely brutal on people. And, and the, the narrative that that helps build steely determination and almost in the you know, worlds in the fire strength but as we as we know with christy wellington you know she was she's almost torn between her coach she created this environment for her to train in where she was hostile with all of the other people she was training alongside and and felt ostracized and bullied but it got her results but she doesn't know you know if she doesn't know how to feel about that necessarily and so what's going to change in future sports are we because is there a new style of coaching that's going to transform everything? And if so, will that deliver the same results? It's going to be, it's, I think it's quite, I, well, I don't know anything about coaching, of course, um, but it is almost, there has to be a, uh, there has to be, I don't know, I suppose the, the, there's, there has to be a looking at, you know, at the, I suppose the thing is, it, the way that it's been looked at before is that athletes are there to be chewed up and spat out. And it doesn't matter what happens after they've retired, as long mm. as they've got their gold medal, you know, that's, mm. what the, that's, and, and, and it's a thing to do with funding. It's a thing to do, you know, with the way that, um, the way that coaches are brought in to, to get the results they want. Um, but then there has to also been that element of, you know, what about the long-term health? You know, it had, I suppose it's, it's less short-term thinking and, you know, about mm. medals and about getting, you know, immediate success at the next Olympics. And about you know th there is a duty of care to those athletes for them to be able to go on without 
physical trauma without emotional trauma you know so they 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 they, they leave the sport without being torn up of course you know, their body you know they, they're going to be operating at the at the highest level and so there's going to be a uh, a physical toll taken but there shouldn't be an emotional toll that that you know that leaves them in a in a situation where they may have may have got success but it's been completely overshadowed by all of the all of the trauma that's gone with it that's not that's not success that's 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 horrific yeah and and whether as you know society is more moving towards being considerate of all people at all times and you've got to wonder what's in store for something like football academies where kids are rejected all the way through and there's so many more people involved and traveling all across the world and um yeah, I, I think there's going to be. A, I, I do think I do think there's a di there's a difference. I mean, like football academy is a particular example of like the you know there's historic sort of sexual abuse and uh, uh, you know associated with them through through positions of trust. And I think more and more that's going to come out as uh, as people do. But the thing is with football academies is that there are, there are so many stories of people who are are rejected and then they they use that rejection to 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 go on and you know change up what they do or prove people right and and so we always hear that narrative that goes with it that you know being treated that way i don't way think a bit. you do very much if you think how many people oh no no, no we don't oh no absolutely we don't yeah we don't hit the no, majority of people it it destroys them they don't do anything else they drop out or they they sort of they low it but there's always the two or three that form the narrative for you know we could, yeah. You know, we throw you, you know, you, you've been with the program for this amount of time. We you throw you away, and then they've gone. Oh, you know, go into the lower leagues, prove themselves, and then you know, hope, then the same team that rejected them buy them back for you know twenty, thirty million. Like you know, it's just we, people love that. They love that narrative. It's, it's important, like all these narratives that fit. The uh, I suppose that's the difficulty, isn't it? It's that what we understand of what an uh, Olympian goes through mm. is is so narrow. We see. Someone, we see someone that we may never have heard of until the Olympics competing in something. We literally will not have heard of that person mm. competing in a sport that we've taken no interest in whatsoever up until the Olympics, until they win a gold. And then all of a sudden, you know, that's <laughs> like all, their value has been proven to us. Like when you see someone mm. in a sport that we don't, you know, that we don't historically winning a bronze and we go. All of a sudden we want to buy shreddies from them. It's only, it, well, they don't because they don't get it because too many people have won medals. So they don't get, <laughs> they don't even get the shreddies uh, uh, gig. Um, but that's it, isn't it? It's like this so, um, like Olympic success is, it, because we've become so good at it now it's all it, it, it's horribly throwaway in the minds of um of people and that and that's mm. it you've, you've, it's very easy to forget that behind all those medals and behind all the people that have gone there and maybe not got a medal there's all of this sort of sacrifice and, and everything else that goes with it um and, and what happens to all those people afterwards that that's that's the thing and so uh, you know and and of course we've spoken to um uh, to Marilyn um, about you know the way that fundings worked and the way you know the way she was treated, um, which again it's not it's not a way to treat a a, a, mm. a human being basically, let alone you know the fact that you're you're an athlete and you've dedicated the amount of time that you have to it. Um, so, I, but but who drives this? Who drives this? It it it, it it's you know it, it, is this is this legal action going to drive it? Is it going to? I mean, I have zero zero. Um, 
confidence in any of the major associations or organizations that they even have the ability to to shift direction on this i mean what you know who do you think's gonna gonna be driving this change well uh, the good question and, and then it comes down to marilyn as she was saying and as rob cola was saying to do with drugs and sport and doping you need more sports people um current sports representatives on boards and in committees and associations to actually give the voice of current athletes and and that's the way you change it because then it's not just people out of touch who are still using methodologies and ways of treating people from 30 years ago uh, but it there's there there will be a, a point where is there going to have to be a choice between performance and being uh, considerate and that I don't know because we, we've never really seen that many approaches where everyone's treated lovely and barely and whether that can drive as much passion for training and performance as, as people who've been through the grinder. Because um, that, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, fundamentally, like if you had to have, it's, it's almost as though if you had to opt in or opt out, like if you say, like, we've got mm. this path as, a, as, a, as, a, as an athlete, we've got this path that has been proven to get, res get results and get the medals that you want, but it's horrific. You're going you're gonna to cry, you're going to suffer, and it may mean that you, you know, you're going to feel the effects for years, but you will get that gold medal. And then mm. this other path, which is less proven, but we're going we're gonna to care for you, we're going to you know, nurture you in the, in the way that we think is possible, um, you know, we're, we're still not a hundred percent sure how well we'll do it. And it, it's just a really hard, it's almost, it's, a, it's like a fake choice, isn't it? It's, it's the same mm. choice that they have to make with drugs. You know, it's like, I mean, if they, you know, if you are ever in a, in a, in a situation where, you know, there's that option of, um, you know, increasing your performance, which there isn't in most, in most situations, but it's almost as though you, you know, it's just such a hard one. I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to hear some alternative voices in coaching at the mm. top from you yeah. know, through the top of around the top or people maybe who are, who are sort of whistleblowing um, on, on the way that, that coach work, uh, who, who, who have seen the alternative way work to have seen the, the, the way, you know, that it isn't just a collaborative coaching. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Now, Jody, I've, uh, I know you love the Iron Man. It's something that you're, you're constantly, why are we why with. are we talking about this? Why are we talking about <laughs> this? Why do we always come back to talking about Iron Man? Well, until you've done your Iron Man, it's always going to be the elephant in the room. But people don't people don't listen to this podcast to hear about Iron Man. I don't think I think you are you're letting our listeners down by keep talking about. Uh, oh, I mean, then then the 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 way to resolve this is to do the Iron Man so we can move on. So I'm no, putting this back on not, you. It's, this isn't my fault. Covid <laughs> has stopped all these Iron Man events. Not it's nothing to do with me. Like, but um, we've got we've got some news. The you remember the sub two project we had, and how that emanated you know, that raised marathon running and changed yeah. people's perceptions. All these positives um, supposedly associated with it. Well, Jonathan Brownlee. Was it Alison Brownlee? One of the Brownleys is now planning on doing a sub seven Ironman in a similar vein oh, where it? they get drafted the whole way on bikes 
um, they'll have all of the the same strategies used for that sub two, but applied to an Ironman. Try and get the the world's very first sub seven. So where does that excite I, you? Uh, not at all. Uh, where where is the I suppose the biggest area there in terms of it is going to be the cycling, because I mean how much mm, how much yeah. how much more are you going to change about the swim? Probably there's he's probably at that level now where his swim is the most efficient as it it, it possibly can well, be. You can you can if you if you put an amazing unless it's downhill them, <laughs> downhill you can still get yeah that I mean. <laughs> But you could you could still have a, a he could still slipstream during that quite easily, and even choosing a water because most Ironmen you know they don't choose somewhere that's that's necessarily uh, that. Yeah, you know, you're going to have somewhere that's absolutely still. So will it be it'll be open water? So still open water. They they they've not fleshed out all the details yet. I believe it will be rather than in a pool. Because weather weather conditions are going to make the biggest factor. Surely going to be the biggest mm. factor with, with that. Yeah, but then there are places in the world you can control that with more certainty and you find a lovely crystal clear lake. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how deep they go on things like drafting because if you if you think about sub two and they had their diamond formation, I don't actually know what the optimal number is for drafting in on a bike. But if you think of an entire team of people ahead of him, all rotating round is it going to be four cyclists 10 cyclists oh it's going to be it's going to be the worst peloton of all time i'd love it if a car tried to overtake that uh, at that time to see because that that will be a nightmare (laughs) yeah there's going to be some some (laughs) there's going to be so many cars backed up behind behind him it's going to be there's going to be such fury but surely surely so all things being equal with the with the weather Mm. Surely it's going to be the cycling where they're going to. Mm. They're, that's going to be the area that they make up most most time. Yeah, absolutely. But even even on the running and things and being able to save yourself so much with. But the, the, what I'm excited about this is just to see what they come up with for the cycle because I'm not sure if anyone's ever fully studied aerodynamics of groups of cyclists to understand how to protect one person in the middle or at the back. And if you if you think about what they came up with for the Nike projects, that was that was different to what you'd expect to have runners behind as well. And whether that then changes on the bike, you know, whether what they do on the yeah, bike is something they, completely different to anything we've ever seen. Because there's you would use the basis of the the uh, the sub two project wouldn't you two hour project in order to in order to decide what happens on the right is this being done by Ineos or is this by someone else don't know actually so I you think, use, I you, think that he's come up with it as an idea and is now pushing it forward so yeah so you'd use the basis of the of the sub two project wouldn't you as the mm-hmm. as the starting point but when it comes to like cycling there must be so many competing opinions about the different variables that you can change about it's just it it would be really interesting to see what 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 are like the key decisions that they make in in terms of that and if you if you think how fast kipchoge is when he's doing sub two he's going at a crazy crazy speed but the the fact that that drafting makes was it 30 percent difference potentially 
And I think how many cyclists on earth are better than the Brownleys? There's, there's hundreds of them. And so for them to be able to be doing time trials of going flat out for 20 minutes over the course at the speeds they could be doing on average versus what they're doing in a normal Ironman, it, 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 it's going to be so much faster. So I hope they do it just because I think it will be fascinating to watch and useful as well for, for scientific studies on things like aerodynamicity. Um, but yeah, do that. Does this excite you at all? Do you think... And if it does, you're banned. <laughs> <laughs> and the good thing is it, it just adds more pressure on, on JD to make his time look even worse because suddenly <laughs> we're no longer thinking of whatever the, the, the world record is now. We're thinking of, well, he went sub seven, Jody. But, I mean, would you accept us copying their techniques when you race? <laughs> uh, do you know what? I'd love it. I'd love it if I did have um, uh, this sort of V formation of cyclists around me while I'm doing it because I can, I can hook on a nice um, camel toe to, to the back of it. Yeah. That would that'd be, be perfect. And I, I don't know if camel toes are, you know, explicitly banned in... <laughs> <laughs> no, man, I haven't seen anything in the rules that says anything <laughs> about camel toes. <laughs> now, um, on to our guest from what that involves a little bit of running to someone who's trying to get you to run a little bit more. Take it away, say, Nick. Uh, I was going to say, for, for someone who constantly has a running mare to someone who's promoting running mares. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Is it okay if I still eat my beans on toast as well when you, we talk about losing yeah, money? That's a great list. <laughs> Did you ever get your speedboat? No, never. I mean, oh. um, but I did have a very embarrassing story whereby I never knew this. I don't know if anyone's ever done it, but I'd never really done much. I'd what you call it speedboat and water skiing anyway. And um, we Most did it. And I, didn't have any, I didn't have any um, <laughs> didn't have any wetsuit, uh, so I just did it in my shorts. And they knew this was going to happen to me, but I never knew. But basically, if you're not very strong, I'm basically like a sparrow. You're right. If I was in Gladiator, <laughs> that would have been my spa My name would have been, you know, like, there was Hawk and I, I would have been Sparrow. sparrow. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, so I couldn't quite pull my, my, like a combination of having weak arms and short legs meant that I sort of just sort of bobbed along just above the water whenever I got up. But I didn't quite like stand up and like, look heroic. Anyway, then I got back on the boat and then all of a sudden, I guess this would make sense. I sat there and all of a sudden it was like, and something basically appeared from within me. <laughs> oh, oh, really? I've heard it. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to say you lost your shorts. No, no. Oh, that's, that's where that was going. A, a, lot, of, a lot of sea water had basically gone where I couldn't see it and then reappeared again. <laughs> so it's like a free, a free colonic. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But no one ever mentions this to you. Obviously, that was like, and I was like really embarrassed. I was like, did, did that really just happen? They were like, yeah, of course you've got, you haven't got any wetsuit on. That, that's Bounds of it would happen. And I was like, Was it a pleasant discovery? That happens. Was it a life changing discovery? I mean, do you, do you now watch <laughs> <Yeah>. weekly? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I basically just try and reenact it in the bath near the Elephant and Castle where I live. <laughs> what, what I like, wow. What I like about that is that your your investment, um, your attempt, at, how, how much does the speedboat cost? I mean, like, you were, you were looking to. How many have you put a grand in? And there were three of us. Three of us. But, and how yeah. much does the speedboat cost? 
you know, I don't think you even knew. But um, uh, I'll tell you what, it's 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 101 in six darts. How much it costs. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say to you, you're probably better off going on bullseye. Um, it was my mate Possum. He was called Possum, and my mate Undy, and we were like like friends from school. And, um, what was your name? And, uh, <laughs> well, actually, I had a few. <laughs> I don't know which ones to tell you because actually they're all really embarrassing. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Oh, come on, come on! You can't leave us hanging. Well, um, <laughs> they called me Scabe, uh, uh, which I can't quite work out why. But I think it was because we created an alternative language so we could say things in front of each other's parents, and we used to just <laughs> in, introduce an Abe into the middle of like words. So if my name's Scott. If my name was Scott, which it is, it would be, I would be called Scabot. And for some reason, Scabot was an amusing name. So I got called Scabot for a bit. <laughs> and, Gabe. and people would be like, why, why do they call it that? It's like, it sounds like scab or, you know, what, what is that? And, I, and it would be like, I try and tell them the story. And they'd be like, I bet it's something else actually entirely. Isn't it? So, so yeah, welcome to the podcast, Gabe. <laughs> Gabe. Yeah, exactly. Scabe. It's not a good nickname, is it? It's a really bad it one. Does sound, it does sound like a disease of some sort affecting your nether regions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, may, it makes you sound like you've, you know, you've well lived a richer life than I ever did anyway, and that they've well, been consequences. That's, well, that's I think, what I, I think we should just go straight into the interview now, because <laughs> that beginning story is going to be better than anything that we talk about to do with running. Um, have you done any other, just been... any other investments? Any other investments? <laughs> yeah, um, well, it was strange enough we gave up after that. Um, uh, in fact, I think my friend Possum, who was the one who was instigated it, he was he was a bit of a ringleader. He basically he emigrated actually, and, and he did end up getting a speedboat, but he's he's only ever lived in America, so I've never even seen the thing. So I, I should ask him how he I should ask him how he whether he got luck got lucky with some other fools. Uh, I love, I, I, I thought that story was going to go like the way of like the Cray twins or something. Like you're going to, oh yeah, he emigrated to Acapulco and he has got a, he's got a, he's got a speedboat and a mansion, and we just don't know where he got it. It's, it's weird. Yeah, he's he's lost to us. No, no, he's still we still see him. Um, if we're still allowed to say inappropriate things, um, he and I were united by the fact that we both went grey. I'm going to introduce this very young, very young. Like he was. You know, maybe my first grey hair appeared when I was maybe 19 or 20, but he was like fully grey, like, like, you know, like an old, older looking individual by the time he was sort of mid 20s, I'd say. Anyway, <laughs> his wife, his wife refers to he, his, his wife. I found out we found out this years later, refers to them. You know, well, anyway, his lower area. <laughs> it, <laughs> As Professor Dumbledore, <laughs> because, <laughs> because the effect went lower earlier as well at a remarkable pace. So, so anyway, I've always thought that was quite funny. That um, I mean, not that you should ever name any part of your anatomy, especially not that. But the well, fact it, that it, is, it is the magic Dumbledore. wand in many ways. <laughs> are, we so. Har- are we talking about Harris Dumbledore or Gambon Dumbledore? I think it's a very important <laughs> distinction. <laughs> yeah, it's a very important distinction. Yeah, I don't know whichever's the greyest and wildest looking. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> that one to your preference. <laughs> well, well, let's. Um, we normally do a kind of intro to the person first, but actually, in some I ways, think that has introed it really. That has, that has. <laughs> and it was going to be a muddied intro in some respects, but to get us onto a topic that is is more well, not necessarily more BBR, but is is more pretending to be BBR. Um, <laughs> we wanted to get Scott on because we've known each other for maybe three years just through the London running scene. 
um, and random connections. But but actually, it's been your work with Ransom and more recently, the running mares that we've been posting in our group. <laughs> we thought we'd, um, we'd talk about Ransom, but, but approaching it through the running mares entry point to, to almost highlight what the mission is. So, um, well, welcome on the podcast. What David failed to mention is that I've been bugging him about it every week, you know, for three years. And he's basically been blanking me until no, no, I'm joking. But I think it was basically I think it was something to do with the National Running Show, which I think you would have been presenting something right now on stage, probably in one of your marvellous suits. Um I think it may have been yeah. the very first one of those that I met you at and thought <laughs> that man is larger than life. <laughs> <laughs> well, a similar man in shorts with grey hair. But um, yeah, where, where, where should we enter this from? Because you would originally had a when we another time we met in London Sport Incubator, you were um, devising a, 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 a app for people who were looking for sh- warm showers. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, uh, possibly the silliest idea ever. But um, so. It was. I mean, it still it still would be available as a service, um, but all of the places, the gyms and the hotels, and the leisure centres and so forth, due to COVID, they all had to close their doors to people coming in. But until that point, um, we, we basically did the thing that you normally do when you're developing a new product or services. We asked people who we thought either once did or might be interested in either cycling to work or running to work, what was some of the problems that they faced? And quite a lot of people said, well, actually, we moved office and actually we've only got one shower and there's 100 of us. Or um, mm. <laughs> there's this one bloke who goes in at like 10 to 9 and he's still in there at like 9.40. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as soon as you spot his Stan Smith trainers outside, you know that you're never going to get a shower. So basically, um, a lack of places to kind of get showered and freshen up was a barrier. So we thought, in a, in a typically, you know, gung-ho kind of manner, thought, well, what if there was an app that could allow you to get in to a whole, you know, range of places across London as our test city, um, and you could avail yourself of the facility. Um, and so people like Decathlon and, you know, lots of different um, leisure providers and gyms and, you know, fantasy people said, oh, yeah, we'll give it a go. And so we thought, well, rather than build the app to start off with, we'll, we'll do it in a lo-fi kind of way. And got a few people. I probably asked you actually, David, uh, to say, oh, "Would you be one of the one of the kind of beta testers?" And uh, so we got about, I think we got about twelve people, and about twelve venues to start off with, and said, "Okay, there's no technology. There's a verbal password, which was afresh, <laughs> and, uh, and there was a rubber wristband which had Run Friendly written on it." And so we basically just said to the front of house staff, "Right." Somebody will come in, they'll be wearing one of these unique looking rubber wristbands with Run Friendly on it, and they'll say to you <laughs> in a secret squirrel manner, afresh. And then you've got to let them in to have a shower. And, and then we'll track over the course of like three months whether it allows them, enables them to have more active journeys than was previously the case. So, yeah, and so Run Friendly is, is me. But it, yeah, it was, it, was, it was really impressive. So, but basically, I, I am, I'm a pretend academic as well. So, I have a pretend academic job at the UCL. It's called Bartlett's. It's like the school of the built environment. And it's the center for advanced spatial analysis. UCL CASA. Check it out. It's amazing. Actually, they're really, really like super clever people. And then another one at King's College London CUSP. Brilliantly American. The center for urban science and progress. And uh, anyway, so we basically said got some 
are cleverer people than me to basically say what sort of things should we try and benchmark and then understand and then what you know how can we get a slice of people's you know how people have responded to it and basically it made a across the board it made a difference to people's you know they said that they had made more active trips than they might do otherwise and and that they were keen to see it rolled out because there was always locations where amongst even, mm. even though we got at that point probably grew it to about 30 locations there was still like sometimes you would be in i don't know epping forest or something and they'd go right okay well i live in you know west london i'm going to run to epping forest have you got a place in epping forest and then you'd be like no, we don't actually. Then we'd be like, right, well, find a place in Epping Forest. So it, the, the, it's that classic kind of supply, you know, marketplace thing where you need venues in the places where people want them and they need to tell mm. you where they need them and then you then need to match that that supply and demand. So yeah, run friendly, give it a go. And it's, um, we think we'll probably take until, given COVID, until 2022, until it's back on stream. But that that's probably the main, I, I, I'd say particularly, um, well, I, I don't sweat very much, and so I can just run in in my shorts and be in my shorts all day. But I know of other people, it's that fear of, one, looking red, and two, being sweaty and smelly all day that stops sweat, people considering. I sweat loads. That is, I would honestly, <laughs> no, but I honestly say that it would be a massive, massive barrier for me to do it, any, to even going out for a run at lunchtime or something like that, unless I, yeah. the only time I do it is if, you know, there's a gym with a shower. And that would be it. So it is. It's a massive barrier for for a lot of people. But where it's unified in this thing. So I, I also I'm the sweaty person. If I basically walk up a set of stairs, <laughs> like in normal clothes, I get to the top and people go, "If you just run here," and I'd be like, "No, actually, I I just walked up the stairs." But I have that terrible Richard Nixon type thing, which I get a sweaty upper lip, which is the least trustworthy <laughs> of any kind of forms of sweat. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you say you got that Richard Nixon, like what well, every time you go, you go through a door, you, you're you're doing your fingers up and celebrating. <laughs> Remember that there was that very famous interview where basically they panned in on his upper lip, and it was like beads of sweat, and they were like, "No, never trust a man who basically his upper lip sweats." Basically, that <laughs> me, unfortunately. So yeah, it's basically to cover up my general untrustworthiness. I think is why and, that service. And were gyms responsive? Because having to use a gym just for the the shower is incredibly expensive, but also I imagine they'd be worried about people coming in using the facilities and also other gym goers potentially seeing this as a cheaper way to to get a semi membership. I mean, you're exactly right. So um, the, the the trial had to prove that there weren't just going to be, you know, individuals who who were going to try and navigate their way in using the app and then go and have a full workout for four hours. Mm. Mm. Um, but actually it was that classic thing where um do you remember there was something called grameen bank i think it was called something like that anyway where they get they, they basically did this crowdfunding thing where they gave money to i think it was bangladeshi women in communities and it was all built on trust and they would then lend it out to that village community and because it was all based on trust nobody then kind of abused the the kind of privilege and so we basically set it up structurally for that same way which is like as soon as anybody, you know, amongst the, I think we had about 700 people using it by the time COVID came along, amongst 700 people, anybody kind of essentially ruins it, they'll ruin it for everyone because we'll get a reputation that that's the risk and that's the case. And so we didn't actually have any, um, you know, anybody who was reported for doing so. The the other flip side challenge was because, <laughs> because you know, even though we had quite a few people signed up, um, we had quite a few venues, 
you didn't sometimes it would be like a week before or also before the next person came in and mm. it's actually quite, you don't realize there's quite a lot of staff turnover in those places mm. people on the front desk don't necessarily have spoken to the manager or whatever it might be so we did have a couple of people phone me up going by the way i've just arrived and uh, they know nothing about it <laughs> whatsoever and you go okay well say the name of x like the manager and say that it's been agreed with y and you know somewhere around the desk there will be a piece of paper or something basic which shows and so in the end nobody didn't get allowed in but there were a couple of instances of people going it's slightly embarrassing because they don't seem to know anything about it <laughs> uh, was was the was this a response to like was the overall motivation to actually get people get to help people get active and you thought this was the, the main solution we could come up with or was this also just a nice side project that would have been a business in its own right and and that's have that as part of its mission but it wasn't that the, the company would then become the, the key focus yeah so really good so yeah so um i guess i should probably explain that i i did once have quite a grown-up job and i still do pretend um to have a grown you know grown-up responsibilities um so I was, it came from basically a combination of kind of personal experience and also professional kind of, I guess you might call it expertise, I guess. So I had set up <laughs> the UK government's smart cities program. Uh, smart cities being like, how can you innovate in cities to make them better places for people to live, work and play? And, mm. it, um, uh, and then help set up this, as we said, a world leading innovation center uh, based in London. Um, which is now called the Connected Places Catapult. And that basically, um, you know, catapults are kind of, essentially they're these innovation centers and they're all to do with different parts of the global economy where the UK amongst its universities, science and research base and firms have some form of edge relative to other parts of the world. So they're on things like offshore renewables or cell and gene therapies. And it turns out that the UK is also world leading in how you design, plan and develop services for cities so um you know how you deal with that yeah everything from like where you build how you build it the materials you use to uh, um how people get from a to b mobility as they call it um the uk is a genuine world leader in it and then we're also amazing at kind of financing of all sorts of different urban projects and we're also amazing at kind of the digital side of things so would, would, would like a dubai or an abu dhabi exactly. pay exactly. consultancy fees to london London. <laughs> so that was, so taking Dubai for an example, so so I um, had the privilege of working with about 40 different mayors and city leaders all, all over the world, and Dubai was one of them. So, so Sheikh Mohammed, who is the, the ruler of Dubai, you have to kind of kind of put yourself in this, um, they have the equivalent of their kind of number 10, you know, number 10 Downing Street. Um, we worked with them to uh, deliver what Sheikh Mohammed had kind of decreed that's my daughter, by the way, just screaming in case you're wondering. It's because I you know, either overcooked or undercooked the baked beans and cheese that I've just given her <laughs> uh, nutritious lunch. Um, uh, the, he basically decreed that they wanted Dubai to be the happiest city in the world, happy, happiest state in the world and city in the world, enabled by technology. And so this amazing lady called Her Excellency, Dr. Aisha Bin Bashir, came to London and said, how do we do this, Scott? And so, so we pulled together a crack team of people. And then over a period of a couple of years, we developed them what they called a strategic forward review. McKinsey had done a bit of work and we got to review their work 
then say how we thought it could be made possible. And then a load of different British firms, they're global firms, but with a British footprint, basically came together to deliver on that as a strategy. And so Dubai, if you go to Dubai now, they're amazing. They have like whole kind of like paperless government. They have all sorts of, um, it's all, I mean, it is kind of almost like tech push rather than user need. But there's like, if you want to, if you want to do anything to do with like drones, if you want to do something with autonomous and connected autonomous vehicles, Dubai is an amazing place to do that kind of stuff because they're really kind of go forward on the, on the tech side. So anyway, a very long winded way of saying, we're doing that in all sorts of places all over the world. I sort of had this kind of dawning realization that whilst I do enjoy technology, often it's kind of, it is this kind of tech push rather than like, what are the genuine needs of people and places? Mm. Um, but if you boiled it down, the, the, the whole, you know, most places were struggling from the same sort of things. They were like, you know, it's like Dubai, but also, you know, UK or US, wherever it might be. There's lots of inactivity and obesity. There's lots of um, issues to do with things like air quality, um, toxic air quality. There's lots of um, things like social isolation and loneliness. Um, and it basically, if you kind of break it down a bit, it's like, well, actually, we've structured, we'd almost like designed activity out of our daily lives. You know, people get into a car, mm. drive to where they're going, get out. Um, that's like the least active trip that anyone could ever make. Um, so we have to then try and think, okay, well, how can you then, get, and you therefore don't interact with anyone? You know, you're just, you go from your place of where you live to the place of where you work, and you've had no interactions with others. Um, and so, my, I had this kind of dawning realization, which is, well, if more of us basically moved by our own power more often, whether we walk, run, cycle, you know, go on an e-bike, scoot, whatever it might be, we're sort of, we're, we're not behind glass, we're kind of in and amongst each other. And you go at a slower pace and you interact with others. Um, and so I thought I had this sort of epiphany, which was like, well, I, you know, I love doing that. I've been a run commuter for years. It was like, well, maybe I could as part of my midlife crisis, as my wife says, uh, I'll set up a business to do it. And so I resigned and then was like, right, what business are you going to do? So the classic thing that we'd always done was like, go and speak to people. So in speaking to people, the first thing that people said was the lack of shower. So we thought, well, we'll start there. And then we have this longer term vision, which is to become the platform of choice. Digital techie type term for active mobility. So whether you walk, run, cycle, whatever, we want it to be the place via the business is called Active Things, and there's an app called Active Things, that you can find what you need and when you need it. Um, and so right now we're focused on, do you either of you ever ride a bike? Have you ever ridden a bike? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mainly Boris bikes rather than my own. But I, I do have a bike now, but sadly been injured since I've, I've got it. So. Yeah, well, basically, lack of places to store your bike or mm. to park it safely particularly mm. if you have a nicer road bike or an e-bike or something, is a challenge. And so the bit that we're currently doing, so for Transport for London, we are the bike finder of choice for London. So if you go to TfL and it's like, there's a map where you can find all of available bike parking on street and secure, you can find that on active things, but you can also find routes, like safe routes and routes for walking and routes for other things. Um, and we're now working with, um, to add to the supply of secure bike parking. Um, and so you can find it, access it, and pay for it via Active Things. So, is this is this a predominantly um, private sector thing, or is there any any support from either local government or, or or central government for this in terms of any kind of wider initiatives? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a massive agenda. So, you know, COVID has sort of accelerated what was a long term trend towards essentially using transport and mobility as a way of delivering other outcomes that they want, including kind of health outcomes, because the more inactive people are, the bigger the cost they face, you know, they, 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 they are to society. So the more you can weave being active into people's daily lives rather than say, you must go to the gym or we prescribe X, the more that both benefits the individual, but it also benefits, you know, society at large. So yeah, there's definitely, so uh, in terms of active travel, Boris and the gang have, uh, have basically earmarked 2 billion quid for active travel which is brilliant to start. They're setting up something called Active Travel England, which is a kind of regulator, a bit like Ofcom, and it will hold local authorities and city governments to account for spending the money in a timely way and on the right things. Um, and the, but, but if you compare that, and we say, brilliant, that's welcome. But also it's fractional compared to 27 billion that is earmarked for roads. So we're trying to say, actually, as part of the, both our core jobs, but also as run some as a campaign is, well, make that 29 billion, but don't distinguish between kind of roads for cars and essentially pavements and, mm. and cycle routes or active routes. Instead, think about them in a joined up way and you could transform the way that people move around cities. And is, there, is, there, is there like a limitation in spacing? Because I'm, I'm thinking about Brighton. I'm thinking about what you could do in somewhere like Brighton, which, you know, very densely very densely packed, but you know, absolutely seems perfect for to get more people um, cycling, running, and everything else. But but they just, in terms of you know, if they still own the car, if if the council still own most of the car parks, you could see that you know there would be a very easy way of converting part of a car park to showers and bike stores. I mean, in like in the station, as part of the rebuild of that station, they built a um uh, a, you know, a, a secure cycle thing, and so you yeah. think as part of the normal infrastructure works, it makes sense building that into it but when when there's like limited space how what kind of things are they thinking of doing in order to in order to to do that without relying too heavily on on you know sort of partnerships with private private um so so yeah so i mean the, the way it's a, it's a really good point and brian's a really good example actually so um whilst hilly and yeah, yeah and whilst it has lanes in parts and other things brighton is on one hand a brilliantly kind of runner friendly place you know it's, yeah i mean you, you know, if you if you live there or go there often you'll know that like you know along the seafront and around you know there's, there's even a there's even a, a brilliant statue of steve obet isn't there along the seafront occasionally is. occasionally yeah. <laughs> when it's when it's not being removed or yeah um but but it's not a, it's not an especially cycle friendly place and you'd no. think culturally and because of you know mm. essentially being a an interesting place to live full of people who are kind of artistic and, you know, a little bit countercultural. You'd think cycling as a kind of thing would be really big there. But for reason, and because it's a green, you know, the greens, you know, play It's not really a city. It's, a, it's, a, it's two small towns yeah. joined together and everywhere is cyclable or walkable, really. Totally, that's, yeah. that's the thing. But it, it just doesn't have the infrastructure to, to be able to do that. It's weird. So, I think it's one of those things where... It, the, the way that it kind of normally works, if it works well, is you kind of you build a kind of uh, an alliance around affecting change. So you have yeah. to want people have to kind of almost buy into it or want to it. Um, and that has worked variously in, you know, well or not so well in different places, depending on how 
effective those campaigns and the officers are who work for, for local government are at making that stuff happen in working with like civil society. But if you can get that, plus you can now draw upon funding, it's quite a powerful combination to affect those changes. Your point about <clears throat> there's not enough space to do it is that, that you know you can't optimize for everything. You have to optimize yeah. for healthy, active trips. And if that means it becomes materially more difficult to just jump in your car for short trips, that's what you have to do. Because actually there is enough space for cycling, mm. walking, running, you know, scooting, and other sort of micro mobility style ways of getting about. But you can't have that and have a really, really good place for people to drive and park easily, or a really good place where um, you know the space is allocated towards vehicles rather than people. So it's a choice. And there used to be a chief exec, I don't know if he's still there actually, called, he was brilliantly called Jeff Raw. What a great name for, for, for any human, but Jeff Raw was the chief exec of, of Brighton City Council. And he was, he was really into it, you know, he's really into the topic and really into the agenda. And I think, you know, he would then be supporting, you know, the elected officials to kind of affect those changes. Um, sadly, we have to remember it takes time. Like um, the Netherlands, it's been since the early 70s, since 1972, when there was an oil crisis and there was loads of Dutch kids being killed by cars. So they said, right, enough, we're not having it. We're going to build back to make it people friendly rather than bike friendly. And so if we had 50 years, we could definitely get towards the Netherlands. The problem is we've got a climate change crisis. We need to do it in 10. And do, you, do, you think, do you think the rec that recent ruling on um, air pollution um, with, the, with the death of the young girl, whose name, whose name I forget, do you think that is, is added impetus to this? Do you think you know, that is the kind of thing that will shift, you know, particularly in London, thinking towards, towards this? So I, I think it's like it's almost like it's um you might call it a top up strategy. You almost need those kind of really human. Like if you take the Netherlands example, it, it did take those very human stories for people to increasingly go, okay, we recognise why we need to change these things. Hello, Patrick. That was Patrick coming into. <clears throat> he's six. He wanted his bottom white. Anyway, we'll, we'll digress. We all want our bottom white. Maybe that one have to wait. <laughs> David sometimes interrupts in. in take him. That, take right? him water skiing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No need. <laughs> um, so the the I've, I've got distracted now. What was the, the Netherlands for me though? Because you know it's, it's being it's held up as this really forward uh, society when it comes to transport. But as a runner, being in Amsterdam is a complete nightmare. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. like the, you you can't run in Amsterdam other than a park or along the river because. There's trams, there's roads, there's bikes, and you are lower to all of them. They're all come from a different direction, and there's the pavements aren't that big. So that that's the the trouble now. Is I, it's definitely good to get people active, but I don't know where we belong as runners because, um, certainly with bike lanes being introduced, it sometimes reduces the pavement. Um, and while I've always run on the pavement if there aren't people there, or on the road if I'm hammering it. I wouldn't run in a bike lane because that would be dangerous. And the the inclusion of bike lanes now in some areas actually makes it far harder to run because you've got less space and you can't just step into a bike lane in the way you would the road if you're running at a reasonable pace because a car's not going to be right on the curb whereas a bike is. And so I don't understand how we fit into this because actually cyclists and runners are almost an enemy when it comes to that division of space. 
So no, I think you've everywhere. made an amazing point. So Amsterdam and the Netherlands is very clearly optimised for journeys on bikes. And it's done, therefore, you know, it's very clear, deliberate policy choice and, and sort of infrastructure choice. Um, and it's not a brilliantly run friendly city, I would say, um, as a result. Um, if you take sticking with London or, or Brighton, for example, it, it is much more runner friendly precisely because um, they haven't optimized for something which makes it, you know, make, makes you make a choice. Um, mm. yet. And so we still have the opportunity, I think, to, for example, have active lanes, not just cycling lanes. Mm. So, you know, I, I think like you, I think as a, as a runner going at whatever pace you go, you have to be considerate of mm. others on the, on the pavement, whether it's, you know, wh whatever, they, whether we're walking slowly or whatever else they might be doing. Mm. Uh, and so personally, I think we need to have, and we did some work about this as run some, you know, we, there was, a, there was a review, sounds boring, but actually there was a review of the highway code, like once in a generation, like literally 20 years since they'd reviewed it. And it was all about um, how do you look after vulnerable road users? And so, and within that, there was lots of reference to pedestrians, but they, they, you very quickly mean by pedestrians, what they need is walking. They were like the pedestrian walks into the road, not yeah. like the pedestrian runs. So there was no reference to running at all, as if runners don't exist. Yeah. And this is part of the trigger to setting up the run time campaign, which is actually runners do have different, you know, there's 11 million runners in the UK. Of the, of the order of 11 million people were running regularly during the first lockdown, according to Sport England. So that is not a, that's not a small number of people. That's a really significant number of people. But if you were to look at any form of like transport planning, city planning, city policy, runners don't exist. It's, it's like it's a, it's a kind of totally missing area. So what I think things like Bad Boy Running and Run Some as a campaign have the opportunity to do is to say, actually, runners do deserve a face and a voice in how we think about how we plan and design our places. And that includes understanding in national government policy and kind of, you know, local government policy, how should a runner interact with a cyclist? We can't just expect mm. them to work it out between them because people will get hurt. So mm. instead we should say, actually, it's perfectly good and accepted and indeed encouraged for runners to go into cycle lanes and cyclists need to tolerate that if the runner needs to because the pavement is busy. And so what, you know, we need to try and work out ways to happily coexist with more people moving actively and it being less confrontational. And that means it has to be done at the expense of cars, I think. We need to make it difficult to move about in cities by cars. And that then frees up loads of space, enough for cyclists and enough for, for people on foot. Um, and runners will benefit as a result, I think. Who's doing this well? Who's like a, a good example either here or, or around the world who, who've kind of got the balance or at least have the right attitude towards it? Well, so brilliantly, this is one of those things where you get, it's like, what do you look at to try and understand these things? And so there are some places that have a most amazing park. You know, there are some places that have most amazing streets or riverbanks or whatever it might be. Mm. And there are other places that, um, you know, are beginning to think about the needs of runners in in their city um but there's probably no place that's doing it like in a way you go there they've cracked it so in in some ways it's like it's a question back to the to the mayors and to the chief execs of the cities and others to say well you know you have a you have a you know if you take london for example london is the run commute capital of the world according to strava so really yeah and it's growing run commuting as a as, a, as an act 
and they they, mm. they we can dig into how the data and the analysis is done but it's growing at a faster year-on-year -year pace off a lower base than cycling mm. so more people are, are, are run commuting as a you know year-on-year -year as a percentage than they are the growth in people cycling as a percentage which is amazing but you would never know that in policy terms mm. and london london is ahead of paris definitely amsterdam new york and other places where it's still a big thing but it's just not quite so easy um and part of that is because some places optimize for another way of getting about like you say amsterdam is optimized for cycling and I, so i think you know you can go to like paris now i think is doing the most amazing work around making the city more people friendly in every sense and so they're making it much more difficult to, to you know, to, to drive. Get rid of Parisians. Pardon? <laughs> get rid of Parisians. Um, uh, I would say, I would say they they probably are doing what they probably do always, which is make it better for Parisians and much less friendly to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, unlike the rest of France, that is probably the case. Um, even if you come from Marseille, they don't really want you in Paris, do they? The um, uh, but you know, they, they have this thing called. It's amazing. Have you heard of something called the fifteen-minute city? No. Mm. Oh, you have? Okay. All right. So anyway, this is amazing. There's this brilliant um, Sorbonne architect called, he's Colombian French called Carlos Moreno. And he's a, he's a complexity scientist. We won't go there right now. But anyway, he's, he basically studies the complexity of, of things. And he's applying this complexity science to, to a city. And so they've come up with the mayor of central Paris, who's called Anne Hildago, amazing lady. Um, this this kind of vision for an alternative way of living and they call it the 15 minute city if i spoke better french i'd, I'd do it in french um but i don't uh, and the idea is that you can walk run or cycle to essentially 80 percent of what you need in your daily life within 15 minutes from your front door so that's like you know the chemist the doctors your place of education uh you know cinema whatever it might be and so you then fundamentally remove many of the instances you might be tempted to make longer journeys by car and instead think about services and places being designed differently which means you have mixed use places you know you don't just have like work in one place you know mm. like a central business district and then you then have housing in another you sort of begin to re-plan and redesign places that allow for that and that's really exciting i think but the surely Surely that's something you can never create work-wise because businesses will always centralise. I mean, it's just useful in every respect, but also while you can replicate a corner shop or a supermarket or a smaller hospital in lots of places, replicating a multinational company headquarters can't be split you know, you can't just say, right, let's take a borough each and then everyone has to live next to that place. So I think really amazing points. But I think we've sort of. We're living an experiment in an alternative way of living because of COVID. We've glimpsed a possible alternative. So those places that previously made people come in or actively encouraged people coming in five days a week from sort of, you know, early if you work for Google or something you know, from early o'clock until very late o'clock and everything you've needed within the campus or within the office well actually now many of them have said well we may never return to an office space we're working but if we do it'll be like a couple of days a week and the three days a week you can you can work where you want in a way that fits around your life much more easily and so I think it's that, that almost like point one which is like the journey that you don't make is the most sustainable journey of all 
in some ways. And then you then root yourself in much as Simon Cook, the brilliant geographer, do you know him? He's in Runner's World this month. Um, he basically says there's a shrinking of your permissible geographies in that's what lockdown has done. Mm. But it's also made people enjoy where they live more. They've engaged with people in where they live in their place more than they previously have done because they've almost explored the nooks and crannies or they've done things that they might otherwise have not been tempted to because they could have gone to Miami or whatever it might. Um, that's number one. So it's like digital is a big way of us helping us rethink the near the near term in terms of the journeys that we don't need to make. And then and then secondly, it's like there's an equity bit to this, which is instead of just consolidating investment in a fewer number of places, we need to recognize that we do need better schools. We do need better leisure centers. We do need better parks and outside spaces and so forth in a generalized sense like that may be pocket parks it may not be that you can create you know Hyde Park in you know in southeast London but you can instead be putting more investment into say you know Burgess Park which is near the Elephant Castle and you can make it that much better so that people think well actually I don't need to travel to Hyde Park quite as much because actually I can still go to that one that's nearby so there's a sort of in order there is a sort of equitable very French way of thinking about it, which I think underpins this. It's a more egalitarian way of thinking about investing in much more local initiatives rather than your sort of big, you know, centerpiece ones. And that, I think, is, is also quite a powerful thought. What about, and, the, what about the politics of it as well? Because one of the things that um, a lot of councils did as a result of lockdown was they took it as an opportunity to put in cycle lanes, which I would go so far as to say it's been slightly politically unpopular, <laughs> according yeah. to most of the right wing press. Um, as soon as like one group starts, um, you know, impinging upon another group, cyclists upon motorists, there seems to always be a huge backlash against it. I mean, is any of that factored into the fact that as soon as runners start saying like we we want space here, you know, then you've got another party that's adding to it, or, or you know how? Do you, do you see that as something else that you need to take into account and how how is the best way of, of, of sort of proceed with that so you don't get that situation? Yeah, it's a brilliant point, actually. So um, so it is definitely the case that um, politics is a big factor in road wars, in, isn't it? For some reason, yeah, like in, in, in any, you know, and uh, you know, as soon, as soon as Nigel Farage, who's got a good eye for a kind of divisive issue, piled in against cycling and kind of active travel, you knew it was basically its time had come. You know, it was annoying enough people, mm -hmm. um, uh, which he did uh, and was very amusing. Um, but I think probably maybe it's because I'm a pretend academic. I also think that um, there, there is potential to use evidence and science, uh, both social science um, and humanities, as well as kind of data science and, you know, urban science, if you will. Um, so, for example, there was a very high profile instance where in Kensington and Chelsea, so a, a conservative part of London, conservative kind of leadership, they installed, I think it was £350,000 worth of temporary cycling infrastructure. Um, uh, I still don't know why. I still haven't been able to work out why this stuff costs so much. That's another question. But, you know. <laughs> Uh, it seems putting some wands in and then painting a road and then actually temporarily protecting it from cars should be cheaper than it actually is. But that's put that to one side. That that warrants some greater exploration, I think. Um, but what they did is they put it in. There was a, a lot of kind of positive 
both use of the space, but also, you know, a community of people saying, I never used to be able to go to school, take my kids to school by bike, and we're beginning to do that because we now feel more safe and confident in doing so. Um, but there was also a very strong lobby against it. And so the, what the politicians allowed to happen, unfortunately, was that these two voices were sort of shouting, like echo chambers, shouting at each other, and they ended up listening to the anti-lobby and making a choice, which is within, I think it was three months, they took it out again. So the way I think that science and, and, and you know, technology can help in those kind of ways is, well, there are cameras and the cameras yeah, you can then use like, you know, analytics and you can then just say, OK, bike, count the bikes, cars, plant the you know, cars. You know, literally, how many new journeys, how many bike journeys are taking place before you put this in and how many are taking place when you put it in? And what's the difference and how is it increasing? And so what you can then do, and then you can then say, you know, equally count the cars. How often are the cars still and how often are they moving? And is there a greater congestion? And then you can then look at air quality or whatever measures you want. And you can then say, OK, well, actually, this is the objective fact of what that intervention has done rather than listen purely to the voices. And but, then but you can begin to work. Did someone do that? Well, only at, <laughs> amusingly. Um, and unfortunately, even though the firms exist to help that to make happen, and those are quite a few of the people that I still work with as a pretend job that I have with um, the Connected Places Catapult still about active travel, is um, is that they, they, they are wanting those to be done. They're wanting those services, but at the moment, they're not being used as widely as they should be. They're being used in some instances. But a brilliant bloke called Adam Tranter, who is the, he's the bicycle mayor of Coventry, um, uh, he did some homespun Google Analytics, Google AI, and he evidenced that, you know, what the uptake was and also how there was no difference in congestion once they removed the bike lane. So there was no net positive for the driver. It was just a perception thing. Yeah. Um, so, so if you can then do the before, during and after um, and evidence the positives, then I think it, it, you then have a substance to debate rather than a perception to debate. Well, that's the, that's the, th the kind of the point I was making is the fact that, you know, as, as much as um, as the government and everyone talks about following the science, like very rarely do they ever like, yeah. in, in, you know, it's science versus local politics, especially because the yeah. thing is, you know, it, depending on, on the type of area you're in, I'm in a relatively rural area in, in like mid Sussex. And I know that everyone is vehemently against anything that ever clogs up a road, you know, and it doesn't matter how, you know, you, with that council, you can just see it doesn't matter what you put in front of them. There will always be a political bent towards supporting the motorists because there is always that perception. Whereas I think somewhere like Brighton, where it has a much more political council, has a much more, um, much more forceful view on, on, on what it wants to do. And in London, where you have that ability, I, I suppose those places where you've got probably the infrastructure and those those mayors who, you know, actually, what's it called, the elected mayors who actually have responsibility for, for, for a budget and the infrastructure and, a, and, a, and a, a kind of a vision for it as well. It's much easier to implement those types of things and follow the science and be able to fight against all the, all the sort of the politics that, that, that comes with it. And okay. but the, I guess in London as well, very few people own cars and most people are already using public transport. Yeah. But is there one thing that I because link building on your point, J.D., I think also there'll always be the the argument of individuals who need to drive for their work and whether and, and obviously they're going to be the most scared 
and shout the loudest because um, for them that is their livelihood. Uh, do, do we get a sense of because my my only fear would be that it could negatively impact um, people who are kind of skilled labourers and potentially slightly poorer people more than people who are going into the city to work in the big buildings. Like, do, do you get any sense of of how these policies impact different subsections of society? So there's an amazing academic called um, uh, Professor Rachel Aldred at the University of Westminster. She runs something called the Active Travel Academy, and she's been researching the impacts of these. They call them low traffic neighbourhoods. That's the thing that's been really divisive, by the way. And also the name is probably not right. They could be called active neighbourhoods, I think. Something about mm, yeah. Um, and then, you know, if you then convey that what these things are is not to anybody should be able to drive to their door if that's what mm. they choose to do but they may not be able to do so in the most time efficient shortest route there will be ways where these places are you have to go along the route and the, i think what what what, you, what we're getting at is again you can't optimize for everything or mm. everyone so you have to make a choice that's what vision and leadership is about it's like well, but you know whether you like them or loathe them you know ken livingston basically lumped in and said right we're going to introduce the congestion charge and it was wildly unpopular until it was done and then it happened and then it was then oh, this is actually all right and what you often find with low traffic neighborhoods is if you leave them in for long enough more and more people go actually it is nicer you know it's better mm -hmm. i do feel like the kids can scoot and we can cross the road more easily um and i think the point about skilled laborers and the kind of equity issue is, is like essential um and if you take the i guess the edge case if you take an innovation example you know what we've seen recently is that both sides of that debate have been saying well disabled people people with disabilities need to drive so one side and then you've got another side basically saying actually it's precisely that audience that we are most seeking to serve because they're the ones that feel most vulnerable when there's fast moving cars and so people are wearing the clothes of morality mm. to make a counter argument against each other and the reality is that if somebody takes a high moral ground with you when you're used to being in the high moral ground, it doesn't rest well with any of us, I don't think. But mm. actually what, what is beginning to emerge is, you know, like anything, there's nuance. Some people with disabilities or some people who are skilled labourers are for these things and some people who, um, you know, are against. And it's about their own personal, you know, how close they are to it, how inconvenient it is or how what the benefits are that they're experiencing. But I think the vast majority of skilled labourers, if you look at the analysis depending on where if you take the 15 minute neighborhood idea mm. well if you could you can get to most anywhere in london with an e-cargo bike with it and you can carry most things on an e-cargo bike um why why aren't we thinking about that as a possibility instead of you know white diesel vans um, i think a lot of it comes down to just to wage inequality as well though because I'm in Brixton, for example, and we've been, um, our neighbours and, and ourselves, have, we've all been going through different paint jobs and, and plumbing works. And all of the people who I've spoken to have all come from far outside London. They don't live in London and they drive in an hour, an hour and a half to get here. And I've not set up the the I, I've not actually been the person who's chosen who've been our our um, the people to the helpers, but 
I don't think it's purely on price. I just don't think there are actually that many skilled staff in more central London because the wages we pay aren't high enough and therefore they live far outside. And so a lot of it is actually if, if these, that is another argument that I guess we're going to have to counter is if these individuals who do need vans have to travel, then suddenly Kensington and all these areas won't have skilled labourers. So I think it's a really, really good point. And I guess what we're talking about is a sort of longer term transition and, and that kind of vision for an, an alternative way of mm. providing services. So it can't be that you just ban cars tomorrow mm. across the whole city. But I think you can do things whereby you can make getting to within end distance of whatever your destination is by car is a viable thing. And the last bit, you know, how it used to be done in many other places and I'm not suggesting this is perfectly replicable, is you have like hand carts. You basically put the stuff in that you need and you do the last bit actively. Or you have the service where you get Pedal Me, which is a brilliant cargo bike service. They can carry, you know, eight sofas. They can have cargo bikes and two trailers and you can you can make these things. So I think the City of London is a good good example whereby they're, they're having consolidation centres, uh, micro consolidation centres, and they're making... You know, Amazon, for example, has taken over London Wall and part of that. So that all of their deliveries, every single delivery that Amazon makes within the city of London will be done by wheels or by these carts, um, you know, regardless of the size of the object, they can deliver it. And I think that is a sort of example of, well, if the city of London can do it, then yeah. no one else can do it as well. They just have to have the resources and the patience to make that transition. Um, because, you know, if you, if you say, OK, we want to optimise for less toxic air quality, you know, amazing professor at King's, um, Frank Kelly, his analysis shows that if you, even if all vehicles we have are buses and, and cars are electric, London still fails the WHO, World Health Organization, air quality standards. And it's because of brakes and tires and roads and other things. So oh, really? there's, there's, there's just no way that we can have the same level of traffic and still deliver against the things that we want the healthy places so you know whatever you choose to optimize for we've just got to reduce the number of essentially fast moving vehicles and we've got to try and slow not stop but slow the pace of movement to make it easier for bikes cargo bikes you know electric vans trams you know other things to move around places that allow for you to both move short distances but also to be able to connect to moving those further distances by public transport i think and um and with regards to the run commute which is you know, something i absolutely love to do um do you think it is the the biggest obstacle is things like showers because i i i personally think it's it's more perception that Spot. people people yeah. don't actually believe that it's a viable thing or they, partly people who are trained into a certain type of running, they don't realize that running slower is completely different to fast running and that it's, it's a pure joy and it isn't taxing um, once you get to a, a fitness level. Like, do you, do you, it almost feels as if we need a re-education program of the nation before we can get to the stage where there are enough run commuters to actually be a big enough lobbying group. Yeah, so this is right at the heart of the, the, the Ransom campaign, I guess. And, and we would love you to become vocal advocates and indeed 
both of you become running mares for where you where you are. Um, so with Runners World, who are the sort of co-founders, um, the, the insight is simple, really, is, and it's based on some academic research by a few people, but in particular, Simon Cook, Dr. Simon Cook, like Dr. Simon Hayes, Holly Weir, uh, Neil Baxter, these amazing academics, Glenn Lyons, and you look at their analysis because they've studied both active travel generally, but also the act of running everyday journeys. And the single biggest barrier is that amongst runners, so we should probably take that cohort first. So think about that 11 million people in the UK. Mm. Amongst runners, the biggest single barrier is perception, as you say. It's like they've, they've just not thought of the possibility of it being something they could do. Mm. But if you look at the, the data about the nature of trips, then it's so vital, like a quarter of all trips, nearly 23%, are less than a mile or, or a mile or less. So for a runner, a mile is like it's nothing, is it? Um, two thirds of car journeys in UK cities are less than a park run. They're, they're three, three miles or less. So again, for a runner, what we're not saying every single one of them you could run instead of drive, because that's not feasible. But the message for the Run Some campaign is pick one or two journeys a week that you could possibly run that you currently drive that you could possibly run instead and give it a go. That's like the place to start. It's just try it. And that may mean, you know, right now, most, not, not most, but many more people are, are kind of either working more remotely, working at home and so forth. So some of those infrastructure barriers, like you said, like place to get showered near work, you know, you can form positive habits right now that you can mm. maybe try and sustain and then look to address those longer term barriers later. Um, so, so it's really about giving it a go. And so we know that from, again, uh, some analysis with Strava and other other tools. There are 240,000 people who run commute in the UK now. So regularly run commute. So nearly it's quarter of a million people. Yeah. 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 So the the aim of the Run Some campaign, like goal number one, is to more just over double that to over half a million doing so by the end of 2021. By 2022. And so that would be like a 10, some, we want to achieve something like a tenfold increase in the number of run trips. So that doesn't mean you have to go the whole way. You could, mm. you're going to go to see, meet some mates in the pub when they reopen, hopefully, um, and you're in the beer garden. Well, could you run there and then walk back or, you know, get back another way? But could you, next time you, not when you're going to do your big weekly shot, but like next time you think, oh, I've forgotten the, you know, pesto or the parmesan or whatever it might be. Could you, could you run that trip? You know, could you just quickly, instead of like jumping on the bus or depending where you live or jumping in the car, it's almost like those moments in your life where, again, slightly helped by the pandemic, even though it is a truly terrible thing. Um, we don't need to be quite, many people don't need to be quite smart. They're actually just the act of putting active gear on in the morning means that when that small window of opportunity to do something like a, either a lunchtime run or go and do practical action you know like go mm. buy something or see someone or do something if you're in your gear you can just do it without thinking oh, i've got to get changed i've got to change there which adds time so all of these things i think are just about almost like micro experiments and we're all an experiment of one but if we can be like okay well i'm going to give it a go and then the more you see people who look like you or, or you relate to doing it the more possible it seems and i think it's that simple as a as a, as a sort of message um, for the runtime campaign for people and then we then want those people to also 
think about you know what as a runner what think about the rest of your life what you're doing so uh, when you get a park run or when you go to the gym or whatever it might be do, do, could you get there by running or cycling you know could you could you do it in a way that's active not kind of passive and then the third thing is basically um <laughs> you know, put back petitions back kind of campaigns back get involved with like living streets or sustrans or you know these sort of campaigns which exist to, to try and make places more friendly for active travel for walking for cycling for and then specifically say actually we think running does deserve its place in active travel funding and investment and if you bring your voice and your name to it then you know the thing about politicians is they they listen to large numbers of people that's how you yeah. affect change and, and there's enough runners to make that change happen i think yeah absolutely um and we i've seen recently that a, a runner was killed on battersea bridge at a very dangerous crossing that have been highlighted and and there's already a movement around that i guess it's it's just harder to create that movement around silent killers and uh which is which is what we're having to do really it, it is yeah but i think things like the the the, the tragic case of the of the young girl in south east london to do with air quality mm. all of these things sort of incrementally build up but the, but the honest truth is that some people will be minded to change their behavior as a result of those things. Most people will do so because they realize actually it adds some joy to their life or they, you know, it's a positive thing. You know, if you actively travel, I think the best way you could describe it is you arrive happy, you know. So rather than like focus on the journey, focus on the fact that actually when you get there, you know, actually you might not have thought about anything on the journey, but when you arrive for whatever magical reason, you often feel more positive than if you, frustratedly stuck on the tube or you know you've been caught in traffic it's like think about the you know the joy that is inherent within being active and doing active things it just makes you feel better that's the main reason i would say most people will probably try it and think mm, it's all right actually and then you have a different experience of running than i do then <laughs> well i you might have noticed i said not the act itself <laughs> <laughs> I don't oh, the smugness, feel... the smugness that, uh, that you've, you've been active, is that, that's, that's strong enough? Or maybe it's that I know I don't have to do it again later that day, or it's that I know that I've, you know, fitted it in and I can therefore, you know, cook dinner instead of go out for, you know, whatever it might be. But and I do think that... Cyclist, is that, that's probably the strong one. <laughs> At least I yeah. didn't cycle here. Uh, my wife just heckled me saying, cook dinner, ha. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Have you got any top tips then for people of probably kit use or clothing that is actually better um, for people who are likely to sweat, for carrying stuff to work, for being in a constantly prepared state to go for a little jog? Like, have, have you got any tips that any shortcuts or things? Well, that I'm use this as a, as, a, as, a very, as a very blunt way of plugging all of the amazing partners, actually. So, um, so there's people like, you know, if you think that you're going to need to carry stuff or you want, then get, one of the things worth investing is is a decent rucksack. Definitely. So OM, you know, yeah. one of our partners, they are amazing. Um, yeah. What I do, if you want a personal tip is, um, if you're going to put some stuff in it, take out the, the kind of plastic thing that's supposed to go against your back and instead put like a kind of a puffer type jacket. Uh, and then it basically molds to your back much more easily. So if you put a laptop or something in, then you, mm. you don't get so much. Uniqlo being a good place to, to get such things. Um, if you're, um, you know, gear, like clothes, it's simply that like if you wear, wear decent, non-wicking, non-smelling stuff, 
So like if you've got a bigger budget, go to somewhere like Tracksmith or Sky. You know, they have nice quality merino type stuff, which you can wear often, doesn't get smelly. Um, but if you have a, you know, maybe you're just starting out or you've got a less of a budget. Like personally, I wear loads of Decathlon stuff because actually I'm quite poor uh, spending my available readies on trying to start up strange um, startups. Um, but, you know, most everything that you can get from a Decathlon is is good enough you know it's really it really is good enough and it's good enough for your family it's good enough for you um and you can you know buy whatever you need for whatever the season is within most people's budget it, it is possible you know like a t-shirt's like four quid so you think well how's it so cheap their sustainability things look decent enough so so don't agonize about it um then it's it's like the normal stuff about a decent pair of shoes but it's like i would say the the thing that is worthwhile doing a little bit more that which is quite hard is like if you are going to be carrying stuff, sort of build up to doing it rather than jump into doing it all day, every day, every single day, because you probably will get injured. The classic runners thing. But if you do get injured, then, you know, there are now, I think, virtual and other ways that you can, you know, receive guidance uh, to kind of get yourself back and better again, uh, which I spend most of my time lurching between on the comeback trail, being injured, resting and then being on the comeback trail like most most other most other runners, uh, David included, I believe. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I would say those sort of things. Um, and then I would say, uh, you know, but, you know, basically just ask people, speak to people, you know, you know, find people, what people, how people make it work, you know, and most anyone who now does it, they either do so because they're, in a, you know, they want to get more volume in and it's a good way of fitting it in or they do it because actually it saves a bit of time or it means they can spend more time with their family. And so those kind of positives are actually, I think, the main the main thing that anybody who does it often, you know, that's why they like it, I think. I think it's and one I, of those things as well. If you can if you can like speak to employers about it and if it if it becomes kind of like a, a, a movement and thought of in the same way that people think of, you know, different things to help, uh, you know, well-being in the office and, you know, if it, it gains the same kind of importance and you can do that by allowing more active um uh, active journeys that you know that, that that would be that would be hugely impressive are, are there any organizations that are that push that that you know maybe work on kind of like the hr side or or the people side that that are are suggesting that that's another kind of a benefit um for for employees that you've heard about yeah i mean i think there's definitely there's 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 tools and there's apps and various things which basically almost like give you give you benefits back as a result of being active. There's insurance type companies that do so as well. I, I think in some ways the employers, not every, but lots of employers are now recognizing that kind of their staff well-being, mental and physical, is not just when they're in their factory or office or place of work any longer. It's actually it's about their whole their whole duty of care to that yeah. person. And so I think one of the other, maybe I'm a bit of an optimist, but one of the other upsides this terrible period is that how people and the stress and the and the anxiety that people feel from a bad commute is part of somebody's working day. It's not kind of it, it doesn't it, it's not kind of external to the employer's considerations any longer. I don't think it should. So I think there are definitely progressive employers that will basically be more acceptable, more accepting of home working or flexible working, but they'll also be thinking, okay, well, how can we help you make those journeys in a way that is easier and better for both you? And when they do, 
and you know there's you know there's great some research from places like uk active and sport england and um london sport for example which i've seen which basically shows that you have amazing kind of productivity gains from from your your employees your staff your your people basically being active in their lives um whether that's cycling whether that's running whether that's walking or whether that's you know doing yoga at lunchtime whatever it is it, it's kind of it's a gift you know the the it's a gift that keeps on giving there's a brilliant book out at the moment called i think it's called the miracle pill and it's basically like we've designed activity out of our lives and we design it back in again and it's all of our responsibilities to try and help us do that you know we've become much more sedentary since the 1940s or 50s in every part of our lives we've become much more indoor rather than outdoor as a species so it's like let's all of us you know get outside a bit more do what we like spend a bit more time in nature be a bit more active you know i think we'd all be a happier more connected less divisive place if that was the case and we've had one suggestion from trail pals um can you see a time when in a similar way to the cycle to work scheme that running kit and backpacks and trainers could be also incentivized with tax-free uh, running gear i love them so that's exactly something that we're working on and i would love the bad boy running community to be involved with um there's i mentioned them just now actually so uk active which is the sort of group of people that represent gyms and uh, uh kind of public leisure providers they've been trying to do something similar whereby they're saying all of the benefits that accrue to cycling could accrue to other forms of being active because actually and and so we've been working with them to say actually if you think about a rucksack for, for running you think about you know maybe you need a couple of pair of trainers to alternate between the two so therefore you might need say eight pairs a year something like that um you know a, a running jacket that's waterproof you know when you add it all together you know maybe a running watch if you want to take it a bit more seriously you know a strava you know whatever whatever, whatever things you might get into you know find necessary it adds up to well over a grand possibly two grand a year so it's definitely within the same mm. kind of cost amount as, a, as the cycling stuff so being able to do so in a tax efficient way through your salary and 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 supported by employers and, and the treasury i think it's a no-brainer i can't i can't see why if enough people say it's a good idea and marshal the case to do so mm. why they wouldn't listen um because it delivers against the well you know boris you know love him or loathe him i'm you know not his greatest fan i'll be honest um but you know he's had that personal epiphany that he was overweight and he wants there to be a you know essentially an activity boon well you know put your money where your mouth is you know help people do so by recognizing some of the barriers and if making it more affordable to more people possible we've got to do it and um and, and if people want to help with that if they want to become mayors themselves what's the best way for them to do that ah brilliant okay um so uh runsome.org so r-u-n-s-o-m-e dot -E, uh, org um there's a section on running mayors um it takes less than five minutes to apply we would love running mayors for wherever you live uh whoever's listening um uh so please put yourself forward um we, we don't have a sort of hard and fast number in mind it's more like you know if we can find the right people who can who believe in them wanting to you know believe in running believe it as a force for good believe that a combination of running everyday journeys running for pastime leisure 
health, mental health, whatever, but also running for sport is a good thing for people in place. Um, and have an idea about the sort of things that, that you know, one or two things they might want to do where they live. We'd love people to apply. And what, um, kind, of, what kind of stuff do you expect them to do? Like, or, or would you suggest that they, they, they would do when they, you know, if they take up a position? As a yeah. Manager? Yeah. So, so, so for example, um, this is like stuff that people have suggested already. So, um, so like people live in places where they're building new developments and they're saying, if I wanted to walk or run in, like with my family on my own, there's a sections where there's no pavement. And actually, therefore, we wouldn't do so because it would feel too dangerous getting mm. from that sort of suburban bit or rural bit into the. So they might lobby to say, come on, council, can you put that in so you can do it in an unbroken way? Or other people are saying, actually, I want to be able to engage with schools and school kids and do, you know, do the school run as a run, for example. Other people are saying, I want to be able to go to a park run when it's back on and ask people, you know, what's the one trip that you could do differently a week that you might already drive? You know, how did you get here? If you drove, could you get here by any other way? You know, could you car share so there's less cars on the road? It's basically a whole bunch of like essentially very practical local um, things. Um, but you join a network and amongst the network, people will have different skills and ideas and they can, you know, they can support each other. That's what we're that's what we're hoping for is that. You know, somebody might be great at social media, somebody might be good at, you know, being interviewed or, you know, good at design or good at policy or research, whatever it might be, and they'll help each other. Um, and new things will bubble up. So we by no means have all the answers, but, you know, bringing good people together who believe in the good of running and the good of, good, you know, it helping people in place. Who knows what will come out of it? I, I want to see. Do? What would you do? I suppose that would be JD, well, I want to see. Round here, round here. Right. So we're in the sort of place where, you know, when the government talks about building houses, this is the sort of place that on the outskirts of it, there's always um, uh, houses being built. And the first thing they do is they basically shut all the footpaths. Like a development comes in and a footpath gets closed. So you go for a run out any direction and you, mm. can't, you can't get past it because they've closed all the footpaths. And so it's probably that kind of thing where they probably don't realise it, that that would actually be incredibly useful of someone just going, you know, you can't shut down the whole of this, this route. You need to be able to let people, because it's not as if there's no other ways of getting out of the town. Like you either run on the road, which are obviously mm. very fast and dangerous and, and not, you know, at night, really dark, or you've got these footpaths, and if the footpaths are closed because of because of whatever reason, that really limits where where you can run. So you could see the real value in actually someone just going to that that to that planning thing, or at least having an awareness of it, and be able to say you need to let let's have access, or let there to be some kind of access through that site. That's perfect. Yeah. So that sort of thing. Somebody would write a letter and say, "Here's a template letter. You know, use it for wherever you live to try and persuade both the developer and the planners to." To, to take that into account that would be perfect yeah uh, jd i want to see you going for a run with the mayor of brighton <laughs> do you do you really yeah. in the paper in the brighton bugle talking about the, brighton bugle. the, the issues of uh, of running in brighton there you go brighton's all, well, brighton's all right for running that's the thing it's it, it's it, like you say it's good for running it's probably not good for cyclists but it, it is good for running um, as long as you stand the seafront, anywhere you move off anywhere in the seafront, and it starts turning hilly, and it's horrible. Um, but yeah, it's I I I because I, I don't live in Brighton uh, anymore, so I do miss it because I you know I obviously live in sort of mid Sussex now. But the like the beauty of Brighton was the fact that you could go on these really long runs, and you didn't have to. Like, if I was going to actually, the other thing is what I would do is in in Hayward Heath, I'd ask them to flatten the park run 
because it's incredibly hilly for a park run and I really don't <laughs> like it. And that would, that, that would be the first thing to do. You would shave minutes off everyone's time just by absolutely, like... Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, Dee Bellard, if you've got any ideas, well, firstly apply if you want to be a mayor of your town or your local area. And also, if you've got any ideas, because I've already applied, I'm going to bully Ooh, JD. You've been rejected. Well. <laughs> probably have been. Probably have been. <laughs> we, no. <laughs> but if you've got any ideas, send them in to me and JD at letters at badboyrunning.com and we'll pass those on. And also, you know, not just the UK, this is something where do you think, are you facing similar issues where you are? And do you know of any, any movements that have been successful in your local country? Let us know so we can then just share the knowledge and, and help everyone out. Um, but Scott, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. If people want to kind of follow your journey, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, that good plug. Um, so uh, run some HQ. So R U N S O M E HQ for headquarters on Instagram and Twitter. That'd be ace. Um, I'm Scott Kane UK, um, and the reason for that is that uh, that's S C O T T C A I N UK is because the Australian Pop Idol winner was called Scott Kane. And, no uh, way! Uh, Amazing. Yeah. yeah, he's he's got six pack and blonde hair, or at least he did about twelve years ago, whenever it was uh, last time I checked. So, um, yeah, I'm very much not him. You know, I'm the skinny grey one from Scotland. Well, thanks so much for coming on to tell us about this great initiative and uh, we wish you all the best in the future. Thanks for having us. Have a great thanks, day. That was, that was really interesting. Like, it's, it's so true. You don't think that running is is considered in any way like it just so happens like you talk about brighton brighton has is it's not optimized for running it just is a good place for running it's not as if they've gone oh we'll build these promenades because that's great for runners or anything else like that it's just it happens to be great for running but it's in no way optimized for for cycling whereas like you say someone like amsterdam totally optimized for cycling terrible for runners and yeah. so yeah and you and it's really it's really interesting i just hadn't thought of that with what almost all the class of of transport yeah but like even below pedestrians oh and massively and 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 it is you you do and, and we're in the bubble which is is why we're here but you do hear stories of you know runners being being shouted at or abused or by, by piers morgan by piers morgan <laughs> mainly <laughs> you know we are in conflict with with walkers we are in conflict with cyclists when I run, I'm in conflict with with cars, and and actually, there isn't really a place for runners as part of a commute. Whereas people always talk about pedestrians, but in the vast majority of people's situations, there is they can't walk to work because it's too far. A lot of people won't be necessarily able to to run to work, but particularly in cities, that is eminently possible for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because if I thought about, you know, like when I when I lived in London, it would have been it absolutely possible for me to run to work mm. every day. I mean, running back from work would have been a bit difficult, but but running to work certainly that would have that would have at least been something. And the fact, like, it's just one of those things. It's just a cultural thing. Just don't consider it as an option. Yeah, you just don't consider it. So, I mean, I, I think as I run back from work a few times when I was like training for London Marathon, but I very much saw that as a 
I'm out here and I'm running back rather than thinking this could actually be part of my normal everyday thing. And I suppose if you, you know, it, it's really interesting, like you said, a cultural thing, but it doesn't seem to be. I'm, I mean, I'm really surprised that, that, that London is the leaders in that. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's partly because we are so uncar friendly already. Um, yeah. But. It's it, what you were saying about paths. And the, the redevelopers just going over footpaths, it never really occurred to me, but I've, I've mentioned it before when I went to Newcastle. I was really surprised how hard it is to set yourself a long run route. And I, through not through design, but London is amazing and it has so many parks, but it also has the river. It has the canal. So actually, it has a lot of ways in which you can connect running areas without yeah. having to come into contact with traffic whereas as soon as i was in newcastle anything past a kind of six mile run and you'd really be struggling to to find routes could be my ignorance but i found that whenever i've whenever i would go with work um to new cities or to new towns it is very hard as you say to to really get a good run in without having to go on road at some point I like the idea, though, of this being so effective that we completely shift how runners are seen and how runners are treated so that when we're going for PBs, we have right of way over all traffic. <laughs> so we don't have to stop at traffic lights. We don't have to hold it back. We're literally allowed first to go all the way through. Just keep on running. I'd love it. I'd love it to get to that situation. Yeah. And I mean, do bad. Is it, would you apply? Will you apply? What do you think? Because we are it, it would it could make such a big difference and even more things in london like connecting the areas of the thames so you can run the whole way along the thames rather than being forced into back into the the city small things like that do actually have an impact on how far someone will run they'll extend their loop further than they would have done before and it's it's all about this behavioral change that nudge and I think Ransom could be a really positive force for actually encouraging just slightly more people to do slightly more runs in slightly more distances. And and that suddenly makes a lot more runners. And I think also it's about opening opening up the ideas to um, to private enterprises as well. So, for example, like, you know, there's going to be a lot more co-working space, spaces opening mm. up directly as a result of the fact that there's more office space. There's going to be more as a result of you know recession, there's going to be more individuals working on smaller businesses, one-person businesses that they're going to need office space. So it's going to make sense. There's going to be more sort of co-working spaces, which means there may be more you know, much more local offices. But then you know a lot of those places may not realise that if they installed a shower or a couple of showers, mm. you know, reduce the footprint they need for um, for cars, and you know, it, make it more attractive. I mean, like our co-working space in Brighton. They're building a, um, a gym out the back with showers because they realise that everyone wants showers because we're right on the seafront and mm. people want to go out and you know, run the seafront and come back for um, come back and have a shower. And mm. so, you know, it, it's just I suppose it's just making it aware. But I like the, the, the question I was asking about the space was that, you know, some it, it would make sense to, you know, take over space that's. Because the thing is, in Brighton, whenever whenever they like build something, they always have to put in a certain amount of parking as well. And, 
you know, they take up a huge amount of space for essentially what is it like five or six cars. And you think yeah. the same amount of space you could build like either um, a sort of a really secure bike store. Plus, you know, possibly you could even build a couple of like showers there as well, um, sort of secure showers. And mm. that would have much greater impact than, you know, four car parking spaces, which, you know, literally carries four people or whatever each each day. And, you know, it reduces the impact on it. Um, but yeah, it is it is interesting. It was really funny you were talking about because I just remembered when um, you're talking about running into work. I did a feature in men's running ages and ages back, um, testing different merino wool mm. tops to specifically on the base. Can you do a run commute in this? And I totally forgot it until you started talking about it with these different merino wool tops. Um, specifically say, you know, do these still smell after running a certain amount of time? And they were, they were all right, actually. But I, again, I, I'd still want a shower, I think. I don't know. I've, I've, not, I've not gone for a run and then sat down and worked sweaty after. Mm. I don't know. I think that's... Well, and that's why I do bad is if you're I'm an R-ing and you're similar to how Jodie felt, that's why you run from work, because then you've got you, you can run home and everyone can do that. And whether it's getting off a train station early, getting off the tube early, getting off the bus early, um, parking. I mean, it, it's slightly different if you've got to drive the whole way there. But but you could think is you could park, you know, like it, it, I've thought about doing this before driving into, you know, I've driven into Brighton um, some of the times when I've had to drop the kids at school. But driving into Brighton and not parking in the centre, parking, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of miles out and then sort of walking in, but then, you know, running running a big loop back round again. So you, you know, it's, it's not completely undoable and you're outside the parking zone as well. So that's quite good. <laughs> but the, actually this is one thing where obviously cyclists are a mortal enemy, but things like having Boris bike schemes is useful because it, it allows you to then run one direction if you do live further out without yeah. it being too far. Whereas, you know, having to run in, run back can be, can be hard and it can be can be very far but actually quite often I, I i would cycle some run some and it's about giving those options to people that if they want to be able to run they add in a they add in a bus they add in a bike they add in so they can break it all up and 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 build up these different options to allow them to always be active could you imagine? This is the thing, isn't it? It's all about it's all about politics and it's all about perception and everything. But could you imagine, you know, what what could be achieved if just like one council just were strictly adhered to data science, to the science mm. of how you know of of you know the behaviour of of different groups of people travelling within within you know sort of the community? It's a bit different with someone like where where, where I live now. It's such a commuter town, like pretty much half the town empties onto trains in order to go up to, to mm. London because everyone mm. works in the city. Um, whereas someone like I think in Brighton, everyone, you know, people, some people come into Brighton, but the majority of people in Brighton work in Brighton or, mm. they, or, or you know, um, yeah, I think or they go up to London directly to it. And so like different different cities have different patterns of, of travel and commuting in certain ways that, you know, you're never going to get majority of people here doing anything but you know but they could cycle to the um the train station they could you know they could yeah. do something different you know there i suppose there are ways that it doesn't matter really how what part of the journey is actually having some part of the journey 
would make a difference. Yeah, and it could be that similarly with a place like Winchester, where a lot of people commute to London, if they then experiment with having something at the train station so that when you've travelled back to the city, as you say, it's that last journey that people can shower or people can pick up kit, drop kit. Um, but do better. Who's got good ideas? Let us know. And if you liked this episode, we haven't really spoken about running policy or, or anything similar before. Um, I can't think of anyone to actually recommend <laughs> to... running policy. Yeah, we've not we've not covered that or town planning or or even, uh, even we haven't really talked about the strategy of just running a little bit more. Or running more often, or the, closest, the benefits. The, the closest, I suppose, is like um, uh, sort of the every single street um, running the thing where <laughs> you get to you you kind of explore every single street in your um, in your vicinity. But I think that's kind of the closest. Um, but no, not, we haven't we haven't really talked about sort of run commuting. I, I wonder how many people do it and what what impact it's had. And I wonder if you've done run commuting, are you still are you running more or less now that you're in lockdown? because you're trying to make yeah. up for the fact that you commute or it's just completely wiped out your activity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, that's the thing you actually have to self-motivate to do your activity now. Um, so that was Ricky Gates. If you wanted to listen to that, listen to that one, really good episodes. He's done a documentary on it as well. Um, and if you're new to the podcast and looking for other rec recommendations, listen to the A to Z of bad boy running. That is a beast oh, and a half. Bo, what about Bo Mile? Actually, Bo Miles might be quite a good one because he's uh, yes, he's uh, he has used running in lots of really interesting ways, including he had to one was one of them where he had to do a talk and he decided to walk there or run there the whole way, and it was my wherever this talk was, it was miles and miles away, but he decided not to not to take a bus or a car there. Um, but he does some really interesting stuff. Again, um, interview with him, but also look on YouTube and you can see some of the like really interesting ways he has sort of reframed. Uh, reframe running. Yeah. Reframe running, reframe how you experience your local area. Yeah, and he did a, a marathon by doing a mile an hour. And then once he'd finished that mile, he'd then do something active and um DIY-ish in his house. Really interesting. Good, yeah, good example. So, do batters. Uh, that was the episode. Please do review us if you liked this uh, podcast. Please do subscribe. And if you've got any suggestions of future guests, you can email me, David, at badboyrunning.com, and we'll go out and get them for you. Uh, you can join the Facebook group. Head over to Facebook, look for Bad Boy Running Podcast, and answer three questions, and you can join. And if you want any merch, head to store.badboyrunning.com. Well, thanks for listening, guys, and um, we'll see you next time. Bye 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 bye